Hello, my name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, you came on our anniversary month and Sunday, and we are celebrating 34 years. So happy birthday, Grace. Happy birthday. <clears throat> Turn with me over to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts, chapter 13. title of the message is Faithfulness of God, the Planting of Grace Covenant. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. We're going to look at this church at Antioch and what they did. It says, now the word Antioch, in verse 1, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Lord, help us as we study. Three things I want to talk to you about from this passage. What it means to be set apart. to what it means to be put in service. To work render something to God, and number three, what it means to be sent. We have a great church here at Antioch. Antioch is really the mother of all the churches of the world. Now we can say Jerusalem is because it was the first church, but the intentionality with which Antioch practiced planting was absent from the mother of, mother of all of us in Jerusalem. It's not that Jerusalem did not have an impact on the world, uh, but we don't see it in the book of Acts. And that which they did have as an impact happened sovereignly but serendipitously. So they just kind of fell into church planting. Persecution happened in Jerusalem, and the persecution caused some of the saints to say, it's a little hot here. I think I'm going to go someplace else. And so one of the deacons, Philip, wound up in a place called Samaria, which is roughly 30 miles to the north and east. And while he was there, he just did what he normally does. He started preaching the gospel. And as a result, Samaritans got saved. Peter had no idea that could happen. See, in the Jewish mind, Jesus came to the Jewish people. He was the, the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. And even when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, they heard, these dear Jewish believers, go into all of the Jewish world and preach the gospel. So find the Jewish people that are in the nations and tell them about this Messiah who is theirs named Jesus. They didn't in any way think that God intended to reach us. Not mad at them about that because for the better part of 1,400 years. And even before that with Abraham, 1,400, 1,500 years would be with the law and the contiguous nation that was formed when Moses brought the Israelites out, out of Egypt. And then the family that before that was known as the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, not the nation of Israel, but the people. So 1,400 to 2,500 years, that's all they knew is God was their God. Nobody else's God. He was their God. 
But the Lord was doing his best to try to communicate to the Israelites, the Jewish people in his day, that although he was, he was coming specifically in his ministry to minister to Jews in that day for three and a half years, his scope would be much further than that in reach. And he would, he would con continually bring about different examples of how he wanted to touch people, like the Roman centurion who came to him and said, my servant lies in bed sick. I need you to come and heal him. Jesus said, I will come. Turns out that the servant was Jewish, and the Roman centurion thought this man who was Jewish could come and heal his Jewish servant. The Roman centurion realizes, wait, I don't know that I'm even worthy to have this guy come under my roof. He's amazing. Sends another servant after the first servant was asked to come, asked Jesus to come and heal. Sends another one and says, by the way, you don't have to come. I'm a man under authority, and I have people under authority of me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to one, come, and he comes. If you just speak the word, it'll work just like when I tell a soldier to go do something. Just say it from where you are, and my, my servant will be healed. Yes, Jesus looked at that servant and told him to go tell his master, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. He healed a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Jesus touched a Gadarene demoniac who was on the other side of the Galilee River, uh, Galilee Lake, Lake of Galilee. Touched a Gadarene, a man who was possessed by many demons. We don't know how many. The, the demon said, we are legion for we are many. And legion meant that it was, uh, the, the count of a legion was 6,000. Because that's the way the Romans would, would number their, their troops. And a legion was 6,000. But devils lie. They want you to think they're more fierce than they really are. I don't know how many were there. I doubt 6,000. But he wanted Jesus to feel like, oh, you got to deal with something today. But he healed this, gather, this man who wasn't even Jewish and then told him, you can't come with me, but I want you to go back and tell your people. The Samaritan woman at the well, he was reaching out all the time, even though the primary focus was Israel, he was thinking about us. And so when he said go into all the world, he meant... The entire nations, all of them, go into all the world and reach people who are not like you, yes. along with the people who are like you. They didn't get the message. Peter finally got it as a result of a sheet that came down. He was at a friend of his house named Simon the Tanner, and he was just taking a little R&R, &R, and he was on the roof, and, and he fell into a trance, and the sheet came out of the sky, and in it were, were a honey-baked ham and, 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 and a pound and a corner lobster. We would draw butter right next to it and, 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 and gumbo. And, and it, it, God, God told him, get up and eat. He said, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Are you kidding me? No. Three times it happened on the third time. God said, no longer call what I say is clean, unclean. Stop it. Now, he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about people. He said, there's a man that I have anointed. I have grace. His name is Cornelius. He has sent some people to you, and you are called to go with him and preach the gospel to this man named Cornelius, his house, and his entire household, because they have been amazing. He's been praying, and he's been giving alms. He's been faithful, and I have watched what he has done, and he is deserving of you. He goes and ministers as he's speaking, thinking that this Gentile didn't have a clue, and he, he you know. They really need me. God, God deals with our pride. Yes, he does. He does. He, and and, and he, sometimes he does it publicly. He loved to do it publicly with Peter. Loved to do it publicly. It just happened all the time. And, and, and so here Peter is preaching this message. 
And he's telling them methodically who Jesus was and how he came. And in the middle of his message, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon the people to whom he was speaking, all these Gentiles like us, folk who were not, had no Jewish heritage. And all of them, while Peter is speaking, they begin to speak in other tongues. And, and you get the sense that Peter was saying, wait, I'm not done. Are they talking in, that's not, that's not Latin. That's not Greek. That's not Aramaic. That's not Hebrew. They're talking in tongues over there. The Holy Spirit came on Gentiles. Woo! Wow, just like us. Huh. You think we, you think we can baptize them too? Now, I know that happened. That conversation occurred because it says, I guess we can't withhold baptism from those who have received the Holy Spirit just like us, can we? So in the mindset of the Jewish people, we were distant in reach from God, if at all reachable. Now, I know that sounds really strange considering that today, most, in fact, 99.9% of the church is Gentile. And just like we have a mindset that says, oh, can God reach a Jew? I mean, don't, aren't we surprised when we hear about a Jewish Christian? Wow, that's amazing. How'd that happen? That's the way they thought about us. And even more so, I mean, at least we've got the connection. Well, he was yours. And so here we have this church at Antioch that was different than the church in Jerusalem. They didn't have to be convinced that we were important. And we've got a, wow, what an eclectic leadership. We have Barnabas, Jewish man. Used to be called Joseph, that was his name, but he was such an encouragement to the church in Jerusalem that they changed his name. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. What a guy. Be like that. Be so something that somebody is tempted to change your name because you so identify with the, the good ministry that is flowing through your life that everybody identifies you with it. Barnabas, Jewish man. And then there was a guy named Simeon who was also called Niger. Now, you know what Niger means in Greek? Black man. So even though his name was Simeon, said he was called black man. So, hey, black man, what's up? <laughs> That's what he was called. I ain't making it up. So you got, a, you got Barnabas, who was a prophet, who's Jewish, with a black man in the church. And then you got Lucius. Y'all know anybody named Lucius who ain't black? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And then you got this dude who hangs out with Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod's an Edomite. He's not a Jewish man. And then you got Saul, who's a Jew. So you got some leadership that's all over the map ethnically and culturally different ideas about what life is like uh, uh, the, the Lucius was from Cyrene and Cyrene's on the northern tip of Libya right on the northern tip of Africa right on the thing that sticks out in the Mediterranean that's where Cyrene is he had no real understanding of anything probably that was Jewish Antioch happens to be in the area where we now look at Turkey that's what we call Turkey so it was a long way from Jerusalem and they thought differently but this church had a mindset to send intentionally to the world. 
And this is where we get Barnabas and Saul being sent out. Now, Saul becomes the guy named Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the most powerful and impacting evangelist slash apostle that has ever been. Not only was he great in impact, but the letters that he wrote were penned so beautifully and with such inspiration and accurate theology that we are reading them today with awe. We still have to sit down and say, I wonder what he was talking about. This is so amazing. They were sent to the world. And that's how we intentionally got reached. It's because this church decided to do it. Now, the church in Jerusalem, if you look in antiquity, if you look at history, we realize that some of the apostles there did go into the world. We think Thomas was actually martyred in India. But we have no record of it in the book of Acts. So it might have happened after the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts is only about 20 years, 25 years long at the most. And so church obviously kept going on. But this is an amazing church here at Antioch. And, and, and the thing that qualified Barnabas and Saul to go was, first of all, that they, they, were, they were set apart. Now, I'm going to segue into who we are as a people. I realize I, I'm not even close to being what Barnabas and Saul were. Amazing human beings in church history. I can't even begin to untie figuratively their sandals if I were living in their world. The person who untied sandals was the lowest servant in the house. I'm not able to do that with these men. They are stunning. But the same process through which this church went to send them out is the same process through which my church went when they sent me out. In March of 1981, I was born again at Indiana University, radically saved. God did a miracle in my heart. I mean, really, really touched me deeply. Within two weeks, I was out giving my testimony on campus, just talking to people about Jesus, folks I did not know, standing up on walls, preaching the gospel in a very conversational way like this, trying to entertain them. I got entertained, trying to engage them in what was truth. And then as I got better and better at it, I'd use different forms in order to do that. And we'd see people born again. In between classes, I'd do this. I stayed all summer, and then I preached the gospel every other day out on campus for 45 minutes as kids walk from one place to another. This was my pulpit. This is where I, I cut my teeth in ministry. Nobody wanted me to preach on Sunday, and I did not blame them. I wasn't any good. I didn't have anything to say. I didn't know my Bible very well, but I did know how to talk to my, my peers about who Jesus was. I had a story, and so I told it. Nobody had to convince me that this was important to do. And as I did it more, I, I started to feel not just a responsibility to minister to my friends and peers, but it started to feel like a calling. I mean, I was, I was motivated by more than just obligation. There was, there was something to the Holy Ghost in the middle of this. I didn't have a, a white, bright light that appeared to me, no, no angelic visitation. It, I just knew I was called to preach this gospel. And so by December of 1981, I had graduated from Indiana University, and I, I was going into the ministry. I don't know who thought it was a good idea for a kid nine months old in God to go straight into the ministry and not be theologically trained or have no experience other than what he had crafted in his own world. I don't know who thought that was a good idea, but my pastors thought it was a good idea. And so they put me in ministry, and I was raising my support as a campus minister at Indiana University from January through August of 1982. 
Raised my support, got on campus, didn't have much, but didn't need much. I mean, a college kid. Started preaching the gospel to everybody I knew, and now I felt really empowered because I was kind of paid to do it. Kind of paid to do it. I only had $250 a month. Kind of paid to do it. But I was happy. No complaint here. It was a joy of my life. And the more I did it, the better I got at it. In May of 1981, some people saw Brett was somewhat productive, not very, but somewhat, had more potential than he had fruit, and said, let's start something in Washington, D.C. Let's send him to Howard University and see if he can begin something there. They also sent a team of other people to go to George Washington University, Georgetown University, George Mason University, and American. And these five campuses we began to outreach to. We got here in August of 1982, and it was to the great chagrin of my father, who wanted me to be a dentist. In fact, I was accepted to Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee, was supposed to report in August of 1982, and um, my dad was a dentist, and I was going to take over his practice when I finished in uh, May of 1985, and it would have been really, really nice. My dad was making six figures, and for a guy coming out of medical school, dentistry school like me, making six figures, single brother in Kansas City, boy, that would have been nice. All I was going to have to do is provide for my dad in his retirement. I had no overhead because he paid for everything. I'd have all his patients. My life was scripted. But the Holy Spirit told me, I've set you apart. My dad said, you know, you ain't got to do all this ministry preaching stuff. You can still be a good Christian and be a dentist. You got a captive audience in the chair every day. You know that, right? <laughs> exactly what he told me. I said, Dad, I, I got to preach. I, don't, I just got to. I know it's subjective. I know I, I, haven't, I haven't heard from God specifically that this is the only thing I can do, but it's the only thing I feel I can do. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in American history, was talking to his students regarding calling and he said this to him if, if, if you're thinking about calling and you can do anything else if you're thinking about ministry and you can do anything else do it I couldn't do anything else not to make God happy would I have gone to heaven if I went ahead and became a dentist sure that wouldn't have been a question but would I have made God happy would I have brought a smile to his face no so I knew I needed to do this, which caused a, a big rift between my dad and myself. Four or five years, he didn't even talk to me, except about the weather. Uh, not much conversation at all. He was very angry with me. I was his firstborn, and he had greater hopes for me. And I was going out asking people for money, to which he said, we trained you better than that. So I knew... I knew that the Lord had something on the inside of me, and I knew it was different, but I didn't know exactly what it was. I didn't know what it would look like. I just knew I had to obey. And so in 82, I came here with these other people, and, and we didn't know one another at all. It was just, just people thrown together. I was 21 years old, and my senior pastor was 28. We, we, we had no idea what we were doing. And I was a minister at Howard University trying to start a campus ministry. And Is that me up there yet? No. That picture's on there yet? Where is it? There it is. 
A guy named Daryl Warren I was ministered to at Howard University. He's a great disciple. Chris Clark, sitting here on the front row, came through that ministry. Uh, so many other people were born again as a result of me just showing up one day. And I surely wasn't competent enough to bear the fruit that I've borne. It's only because God, God, had, God, just, God had, to, had to use somebody. And when I think about who I was and my qualifications, I, I realized that everybody else must have said no. <laughs> I couldn't have been his first option. I couldn't have been. But God did something. When we got here, I had very little funds. I had $600 a month. And um, that's, that's as, as much of nothing then as it is now. But I was happy. I wasn't complaining. I was praising God. But I had $250 of rent to pay. So you know that money gets eaten up real quick. And so I was trying to make it on our version of Raymond Noodles. We didn't have that then. And... Um, when we arrived, some, everybody wanted to go out to, to, to dinner every day because we lived, we, we, we lived all in one house except one family who actually had their homestead here in Arlington. But the rest of us were in the senior pastor's home, and he had a wife and two kids. And so we were staying in his house until we found a place to live. And um, it's 648 Independence Avenue Northeast. And we were all sleeping on floors. We were sleeping on couches. Every, Eleven of us making it go. And not 11, let me see, nine of us making it go in this 2,200 square foot home. So they would go out to dinner to get out of the house so this family could have some privacy and really do life. And I'd, I'd say, no, I don't want to go. Thank you very much. I appreciate it because I knew I didn't have any money. I rolled up. A guy drove me from Bloomington, Indiana to, to Washington, D.C. in a car that was ill-equipped to make the journey with, 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 a, with a flatbed trailer that he had built himself, not even a U-Haul. And I had a, I had a, a dresser, a chest of drawers, not a dresser, chest of drawers, that, was, that had no guides. And so when I, when I pulled it open to get out my clothes, the whole thing would come out all the time. And it would just flop around like this when I kept it in. I had a bed that looked like a 25-year-old horse. Do, do you know what that means? At 25, horses, when they get old, their backs sway like this. That's what my bed looked like. I had a couple of pair of jeans, a sport coat and a tie, a couple of shirts. That's it. I had nothing. But I was happy. And so when they said they're going out to eat, I said, oh, thank you very much. If I'm going to hang around here, I'll be okay. Turns out that in the backyard, my pastor, home, pastor's home had a fence, and upon that fence was a muscadine vine. Now, I don't know if you know what mus muscadines are, but they are the nastiest form of grapes God ever made. <laughs> but it was manna to me. It was manna to me. Now, muscadines are grapes. They're in the grape family, but they have very thick skins, which are really indigestible. You don't eat the skin. What you do is you pick the, the grape off the vine, and where the, vi where the grape was attached to the vine, there's a little hole. And you take the bottom of the muscadine, and you squeeze it, and out pops the fruit. And you suck it, and, and, and even the sucking ain't, ain't tasty. It's bitter. It's bitter. And then you throw away the, the, the skin. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner for me. I was happy. I wasn't mad. I said, God, I know you set me apart. 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to survive, but I know you set me apart. You got to know you're called because if you don't, then when you get in difficult circumstances, you won't know that you're called. And you'll be tempted to figure out another way to drive through this very difficult valley rather than the, the path God chooses for you. And generally speaking, you'll quit. The only thing that kept me on the road is that I knew I was called. I wasn't competent. I was just called. So I stayed. And the Lord began to provide for me. And I was happy every day. Not a complaint. No bitterness. Just saying, Lord, you're going to do something great. We established this ministry at Howard University. It went really well. I became chaplain of the Howard University football team the next year. And I'd invite people over to come speak to the team. And I knew the chaplain of the Washington Redskins at the time. I said, could you send me some players? First guy he sent over was Daryl Green. He gave his testimony. It lacked some things. So I said, D. Green, hey, can we get together? We formed a great friendship. I discipled him. He became a part of our church. And that began the process of me carving out athletic ministry in the Washington, D.C. area whereby I might become chaplain of the Washington Redskins. Influence began to build, not because I was so good, simply because God didn't have anybody else. I was last on the list, I promise you. And as a result of knowing I was called, <clears throat> I stayed around. God gave me a beautiful wife, Cynthia. We had a bunch of people. That's what they are. They ain't kids. They people. <laughs> had a bunch of people. Had seven kids. One adopted. Uh, a girl came to our church at the age of 16. Daddy was 15. She was eight months pregnant. So could anybody adopt our baby? She was Asian. And um, the daddy was Italian. And we were expecting the child to come out with at least dark hair and, and, and dark eyes. And blonde hair and blue eyes. The baby came out. With, yeah, yeah. So we brought this little, little beautiful girl home from the hospital the day after she was born. And she's been ours ever since. She's now 23 years old. And we are very, very happy. God began the process of, of what it looked like for me to become the kind of pastor I needed to be for the people who would come later. And that he gave me a vision about what I am to work at. It says of, of Saul and Barnabas, set them aside for the work to which I've called them. So I was set aside, but there was, a, there was a particular work to which I was called. I've, I've been primed for this all my life, to build a church that is multi-ethnic. My parents didn't know it, but they were training me for this. I've been primed to be a speaker all my life. My mama had me go to a speech therapist because I had a lisp when I was in from zero to whenever I could talk to, to six years of age. And she sent me to a speech therapist because she didn't want me to have a lisp. And the front row is happy, I promise you. <laughs> God did a whole bunch of stuff, moved me to a predominantly white neighborhood, made me understand how white folks think, made me have my best friends growing up all be white folks understanding how to not have any bitterness and this was in the 60s for things that were said about me things that were done to me he primed me for this put me in a predominantly white ministry the church from which I was sent in Bloomington, Indiana only had two black folk me and another 
keyboard player who now is our worship leader downtown at our church in D.C. We were it. So I've been in this environment birthed and nursed in what it meant to be conciliatory in all of my actions and in my theology. Every bit of my life has been geared to build what we have built. I can't do any other. And when I look at the Apostle Paul, if there's anything that's an overlay, is that we have this in common. All of his letters at some point deal with Jew and Gentile. And the, the letters written to churches deal with Jew and Gentile. In Ephesians, he said, God has broken down the, the dividing wall which, which separated the two, and he's made the two now one. You think we have issues between black and white? Oh, Jew and Gentile. At least we like the same food. I mean, potluck dinner ain't no big deal. What are you going to do when, when the Gentiles bring gumbo to a kosher meal? How, how do you do that? These Jews have wonderful heritage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they know so much stuff. These Gentiles, who are those cats? I don't know nothing about Isaiah. What are you talking about, Jeremiah? In, in my book, David was the enemy. I came from Philistia. He was the guy we hated. Are you kidding me? Your songs and psalms talk about Zion. We hated Zion. My grandparents hated Zion. Everybody talked about how Zion was horrible. We wanted to destroy Zion. That's what you want me to sing? About how Zion is beautiful on the mountain of the Lord? Are you with me? They were all in the same region fighting over the same territory. And now they were being in the same church. You talk about issues. Whoa. I understand what Paul had to go through. How do you make these people one? How do you do that? In 1991, the senior pastor decided he wanted to do something else. And he asked me to take the church. Our church wasn't doing well, not at all. I mean, really bad. We'd gone from 180 down to 75 in a period of about 18 months. That's almost two-thirds of your church. That's, that's, that's a bad, bad loss. And he said, I need to do something else. This church is going to die if you don't take it. I said, I don't know how to pastor. I know how to do campus ministry, but I don't know how to pastor. He said, if you don't take it, it's going to die. I said, okay. So I took it, told the church, listen, hang out with me for three months. Let me get my feet under me. If, if this works, you can vote with your feet in August if I'm not going to be your pastor. But, but give me at least three months to prove myself to you. And if I don't, great. So we had 75 in, in May of 1991. By August, I had skillfully led us to 53. And a 53, 53 that wasn't happy. I mean, they were looking at all their friends every day. Every Sunday we got together thinking, you going to be here next week? Are you going to be here next week? They were looking at me thinking, I don't think he's going to make it. I do not. He, I, I, he's got a lot of potential, but I don't know if he can make it through this. I was looking at them thinking, I don't think they're going to make it. <laughs> I don't think they're going to make it. I had two babies. Uh, within a year, we were pregnant with our third, and the church could barely provide for my wife and I. I had my dad who was living with me that I had to support. By the way, that's a great story. He got born again, stronger supporter in my church, sitting on the front row every day. I mean, that's a story. And I had the privilege of caring for him as he cared for me in his last days. He died of cancer. But he's in heaven waiting for me to get there. He had to wait a while, though. And for some, some unknown reason, 
You can say the grace of God, but I have no natural thing to point to. We made it. All 53 of us made it to the next year. Uh, no, not true. 53 made it to the next year. It was a different 53. <laughs> but 53 made it to the next year. We didn't grow at all. But we had hope. We made it. The next year after that, we had 75. After that, we had 99. And we were on our way. Now, you think 99 is not a big number. It was huge for us. It was huge. At least I was, I was growing. And I'm so grateful during that time period because I really didn't know what I was doing. And Chris stayed with me. And Daryl Green stayed with me. And Tim Johnson, our church planter in Orlando, stayed with me. And his wife, Tim's wife, beautiful girl, Michelle, I, I would read my sermons because I didn't know what I was doing. Type them out and read them. And she'd say to her husband, you know he's reading his sermons, right? <laughs> he's reading his sermons. You think we're going to stay here? We're going to stay? You sure? You, he doesn't know what he's doing. And now when I go down and preach for them in Orlando, she just says, boy, you don't even have notes anymore. You have grown, Pastor. You have grown. <laughs> but they stayed. And if they hadn't stayed, you wouldn't be here because we wouldn't have anything. So I'm not just grateful for what God has done in producing what he's produced. I'm grateful for the people through whom he's done it. Every day of my life. You just don't know how, how important people are to your progress. Until either you have no strength in yourself to pull it off. And you have to depend upon others' faithfulness to make it happen. Or you are all by yourself and you have nobody. Those two circumstances are amazing revealers of your weakness and identifiers of where you need to begin to reach out for strength. It wasn't just the, the strength of God as ministered to me to get me up every day. It was also looking in the eyes of my friends and saying, I can trust you. Thank you. You're for us and me. Thank you. And as a result of God's faithfulness and theirs, you're here. We didn't know this would be. Am I right, Chris? We didn't know, you would, we didn't know you'd come here. We didn't know this building would be here. We didn't know we'd buy water. We didn't know nothing. We just were trying to make it every day. To build a church like this is not easy. Some of my friends who are building homogenous churches... Generally, during the election cycle, all the bumper stickers in the parking lot have the same candidate. In our election cycle, not so. We have to talk. Conversations happen. Now, I, don't, I haven't seen one bumper sticker in our parking lot for either of the candidates this year. I don't know what that means, but it's saying something, saying something. But these are the things we got to deal with that generally homogeneous congregations don't. We have to deal with everything else they have to deal with, but we have to deal with kind of stuff like that. When, when ethnic tensions arise in our country, I got to talk about it. We have to deal with it. And whenever I do, some people consider me not black enough. Some say I'm too black. 
Same message. I get email after email. You didn't represent us well. You represented your your race too well. All the time. God does, he does some amazing things just to keep us together. The things that we have to do behind the scenes in prayer and fasting, how we have to work relationally, how we have to navigate through misunderstandings, just to make sure that there is not a facade of unity, but a real depth of unity on my staff when we present up here on Sunday morning through worship and song. As we relate, it takes work. But it's worth it because the the message we preach before I ever get up to say anything is loud and clear to the rest of our community. And there probably are, are times in our past where a congregation like this would have been even more needed. But now, surely, there is relevance to our being. God wants to do something with our unity, our unity that is, that is best expressed through diversity. I can only build like this. It would be easy to build a congregation that liked the music I like, that ate the food I eat, and grew up in the heritage I grew up. That would be a piece of cake. As hard as it would be to build a church, it would be much easier than what we've chosen to do. But I can't build any other way. This is how I work. This is the rendered service I give to God on the regular, saying, Lord, do something with us. I can't rest until we see our city won. I don't think we can do it on our own. I have no delusions of grandeur regarding our our influence on this city. I know we need to do it with the rest of the body of Christ. But my goal is not just to build a big congregation. My goal is to see my city won. And I am partnering with the other pastors in my region to make that happen. Gary Hamrick over at Cornerstone in Leesburg is my buddy. Just had him preach over at the Redskins Chapel last night. He and I are friends. We're dialoguing. He just finished, is finishing a building. They get their permit, occupancy permit here in a couple of weeks, and they'll have their first service at the end of October. What a man. He's got 3,000 on Sunday morning. He's just he's killing it. He's doing a great job. And we're partnering together to try to win Loudoun and Fairfax. Mike Mentor at Reston Bible, my buddy, we have lunch together. This was over at his church the other day. We're trying to figure out how to make this thing go, how to win our city. God wants to do something here. There's a purpose for our being beyond just being, beyond just being. And lastly, not only do we have service to render, but they were sent. They were sent. I mean, these, these apostles had to work. They had, to, they had to figure out how to make church be. That was not. They had no template except Antioch. But these people to whom they were ministering in the churches where they established congregations, there was no corner church to which they could go and say, how's this supposed to be? They had to make it up as they went. There wasn't a manual. There was the Old Testament, but the Old Testament didn't give structure for how church ought to be. There was no idea about what elders really were supposed to be or what they did. Deacons were created as a result of need. How does worship go? How long should you preach? Should you have song? They had no idea how to do it. And Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas had to craft with them what it was supposed to look like. They worked hard, as indeed we do. But they were sent. 
And there is a sending, a sense that God has called a certain person to minister in a certain way to a certain group of people, in a certain environment, and in a certain time. And he has sent me, he has sent you. In every day of your life, you need to have a sense of sending. I know this is all relegated to what they do in church. And for the most part, to the clergy, this is how we feel our idea of calling being fulfilled. I get it. But simply because we see most often the calling realized in somebody who preaches the gospel full-time in Scripture, it doesn't mean that the calling you have on your life is any less important. And you need to feel sent every day you get up to your job, which God has given you. I'll say that again. To the job which God has given you. You know that job you don't like? Let me help you. That job that you prayed for before you had a job. Then now you have a job. And now you complain about the job that you prayed for when you didn't have a job. Do you know all of heaven looks and says, how confused are you? I was talking to a person in the last service when I mentioned this point. They said, thank you. They said, when I got my job, I I didn't even know what my job description was. But I went and hugged my supervisor. (laughs) I, I I hugged the people who were around me. I was just so happy. I shouted. He said, six months into it, I was trying to figure out how to get out of it. Listen to me. There's nothing wrong with a holy dissatisfaction with respect to what God wants to do with your future. That you don't have to be where you are forever. But it ought to be a holy dissatisfaction, not just a dissatisfaction. Because if it's holy, then you are completely submitted to the Lord through the process, and you aren't content with staying where you are. You realize there's a destiny to which you need to get, but you are, you are, you are always patient and you are self-controlled, looking at the opportunity he has given you now as one through which you can worship because he gave it to you. And every day of your life, you can be grateful that you have a job without sacrificing the passion that you need and ambition to get to where you need to be. Amen. That's a holy dissatisfaction. And you can tell that you don't have a holy dissatisfaction when you complain about the job he gave you. No amens on that point. Listen to me. Don't be mad about your manna. Don't be mad about your manna. Manna was that stuff God gave the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. That food that just appeared on the ground at 5 a.m. before the sun came up. They had to come out and get it. They had to get it up before the sun came out because when the sun came out, it dissolved. But it was some kind of grain that they could grind up and make into flour and then make bread out of that. Every day, wherever they were, God gave them manna. Every day for 40 years. Somehow, within the first year, the Israelites grumbled and complained and said, we are tired of this manna. This is what that sounded like in the ears of Moses and God. You're you're tired of miracles? Do you know I've I've never provided for any people in the history of of humanity like I'm providing for you? Say it again. You're tired of a miracle every day. Don't ever be mad about your manna. Now, they wanted meat, and this is the attitude they should have had. Moses we are grateful to God every day. I mean, this is amazing. 
The Philistines don't have this. The Moabites don't have this. The Edomites don't have this. God is providing for us in ways like he's never provided for any people on the planet. We are so grateful. But does he take orders? (laughs) Not being disrespectful, I'm just asking. Does he take orders? Because if he did, I'd like some meat. But if he doesn't, I'm cool. I'm going to be happy with my manna. That's how you come. Lord, I'm grateful for my job every day. But do you take orders? (laughs) Because I got a takeout for you if you'd like to give it to me. There is a sending that you need to feel every day when you wake up. Because the Lord has, has, has assigned to you that position. He's assigned it to you. And you are to advance his cause in your world and consider it a mission every day of your life. I do not care if you feel your job is as insignificant as flipping burgers at McDonald's. You have a responsibility to be a kingdom bearer wherever you are. And you are sent by him every day. These people change the world. And I don't know how much of the world will change. We changed a little bit of it. God has seen fit to move through our incapableness to do something beyond us. I just hope he does more in the next 34. I hope he does more in the next 34. Let's pray.